If you would turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 27, our primary text this morning will be verses 11 through 23. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. Again, Matthew 27, 11 through 23. Today, our Matthew series finds us in the unfolding events of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we find Jesus in court, which is the message, the title of today's message, Jesus in court. Jesus standing trial before the governor, Pilate, who in some ways is reluctant to judge his case. He is brought there by two parties, three perhaps, the chief priests, the elders, and the people. They bring Jesus before this court to condemn him. But we find in the course of things that although God had purposes in this very act, that they had themselves no standing. There are surprising events on the face of it when we consider who Christ is. But more surprising than that still is how God uses every detail in these events that are unfolding before us to work out our salvation and to establish the very ground where we can cry out to the Lord in worship this morning and have it be meaningful indeed. Because Christ has stood in our place. Because Christ has taken and borne the burden of the judgment our sin deserved. Because Christ endured these events, we can worship Him today. Stand with me if you would and if you're able with your Bible open to Matthew 27. And hear now the word of God in verse 11 through 23. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The claims of Jesus Christ our Lord as Messiah, as prophet, as priest, as king, as God incarnate Emmanuel here to dwell among his people preaching and proclaiming the timeless message of the kingdom of God. These claims we find now have come into conflict with the claims of the leaders of his day. Jesus' self-disclosure, who he was, what his kingdom represented, what his message was, What it implied for the hearer, the people listening, was not welcome to the chief priests, 
to the elders and many of the people, the fickle crowds who now turned against him. Brothers and sisters, so it is in our day. Today, as then, the claims of Christ come into conflict with the claims of many of the leaders of our day. In the scriptures, Matthew 27, our text today, this is true, particularly and especially of the chief priests and the elders of the people who took counsel against him, intending to kill, to destroy him. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 27, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Here at this point in the text, we have an aside. We have an interjection with the narrative that brings us up to speed what happened to Judas in verses 3 through 10. But then following verse 1, verse 11 picks up where verse 1 left off. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is where we are in the progress of the gospel. We are at, in fact, Jesus' trial. And these progressions of events are led forward, they're moved forward by the intentions of those who, in their wicked heart, seek to destroy the Christ. The elders and the chief priests have conspired against Him. These events are mentioned in the verses that we have today, verses 11 and following, are prompted by the motives, the wicked heart of those leaders who have come into conflict with Christ. There is a question that is, uh, comes up in the course of these events from Pilate himself, who says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers this question in four simple words. He says, You have said so. Here is the confession of Christ at the trial, the unjust trial before the governor Pilate. The confession is, Yes, indeed, I am the king of the Jews. Jesus, of course, is more than this. In the fullness of revelation in Scripture, we find Him not just the King of the Jews, but in fact, what? The King of kings. In fact, Jesus is King of Pilate. Pilate himself, something of a king figure in the text. John's Gospel, particularly in chapter 18, expounds on this moment as Christ proclaims the superior nature and authority of His kingdom even over the events and the persons, the characters that are conspiring against him at this time. He is, a king, he is a king of a kingdom, of a realm that transcends this earth. Often you have heard it said that Jesus doesn't have much to do with politics here because his kingdom is a heavenly one. Well, I would submit to you to look closer at these events and you will find Jesus telling Pilate himself that he would have no authority unless his father gave it to him. When we look, look more closely at the text, we don't find Jesus separating himself and his authority from some neutral realm and the kingdoms of this earth, but instead demonstrating his lordship over all these kingdoms in his greatest act of salvation and glorious self-exaltation that will come in his resurrection on the heels of his suffering and his death, which declared him champion over sin, over the grave, and over the enemy. This is all part of his sovereign plan to initiate his kingdom in the hearts of every believer. And his kingdom will march forward through history by their proclamation to encompass all the earth 
And one day in the Greek, the word is palingenesia. He will recreate this world as we proclaimed last week. A new heavens and new earth will demonstrate and manifest and evidence the kingdom of our God, which has at that point swept all things into it, brought perfect judgment against all rebels, cast them into the lake of fire, and recreated in the newness of the redeemed realm a perfect circumstance and environment where all of the redeemed can pool their praises together and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the plan, this is the purpose, this is the trajectory of history future to come. But right now, right now in our gospel, He is paying the price. In the Gospel of Matthew, He is paying the price for those very events to unfold in His perfect timing. Jesus was not minimizing His claims when He said that you have said so in answer to Pilate's question, are you king of the Jews? He was not tempering them under the pressure of legal interrogation. In in uh, conflicting with this idea, in fact, Matthew Henry, the commentator, begs to differ. He says, Quote, before Pilate, he, Christ, witnessed a good confession and was not ashamed to own himself a king, though it looked ridiculous, nor afraid, though at this time it was dangerous. That is to say, when Christ admitted that he was king at this time, he did so in spite of the fact that as he was in chains, subdued by the elders and the chief priests, brought before the, what would appear the stronger man over him, Pilate, the governor, representing Rome and the authority of, imper- of this imperial power who governed the known world. It seemed ridiculous for him to claim himself as a king. Would he not be embarrassed to do so? No, he was not embarrassed to do so. Why? Because as king of kings, these events were in his plan. Nor was he afraid to do so knowing that the confession of his authority to this other authority, Pilate, might be enough to get an indictment from this court. In these later gospel chapters, as we are reading and continue to read, Christ's confession proves relevant and pointed. Notice in our text before, in chapter 26, that before the religious council, he confesses that he is the Christ. Upon the adjournment of the high priest who begs him, or compels him uh, by oath of the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him in verse 64, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. A direct reference to the Son of Man who arise, who ascends before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 to receive His kingdom. And what is that kingdom? It is the kingdom of all kingdoms, the kingdom whereby He will rule and reign over the entire created realm. This was the confession, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of Man, that He gave before those who would be most interested in opposing this view, that is, the religious council of the high priests and scribes and elders who had gathered. And so it is in the next chapter that before one who would be most interested in subjugating him to himself in order to reinforce his own power over the region, Pilate, Jesus confesses that he is indeed king. He is Messiah. He is king. And he does not shirk through embarrassment or fear from confessing the same before all the powers that be. Before the religious council, he confesses himself Messiah. 
Before the civil court, he confesses himself king. He does not minimize his claims, though he qualifies the nature of his kingship in John's account. Matthew Henry further observes by historical pattern this note. He says, It has often been the hard fate of Christ's holy religion unjustly to fall under the suspicions of the civil powers, as if it were hurtful to kings and provinces, whereas it tends mightily to the benefit of both. What is Matthew Henry saying here? He's saying that it is true in the Gospels, and so it is true in the course of history, that rulers who are uncertain of the ground of authority and do not answer to the Lord, at least in their consciousness, though they will someday, see Christ's rule, His reign, His church, often as a threat. And they are suspicious, therefore, of the King of kings. And they judge that His rule, or the Christian's claim to serve a higher king than them, will be hurtful to them and to their realm. But indeed, it is to the benefit of both. The only ground for stability, for freedom, for peace, for the interchange of relationship within the economy of any people, any society, any, na- any nation, the only foundation is the rule and the reign, the authority and the law of Jesus Christ. Amen. Only under Him as our sovereign will we in this realm evidence the stability that will bind disparate peoples together. Only in Christ and acknowledging His kingship is there any le- legitimate rule and authority and so before him both the religious leaders and the civil rulers of our nation must bow they must bow to him or be judged by him this is the message of the gospels the superior the superior authority of jesus christ and now with that perspective in mind it is shocking surprising indeed to see the king of kings and lord of lords stooping so low as to give his life a ransom for many. When you read the gospel, and when you see the compassion of Jesus Christ humbling himself by submitting to the chains of the religious leaders, of the temple rulers, such that he, in deference to the will of the Father, sets aside his prerogative to call 12 legions of angels to intervene on his behalf, For the will of the gospel goes forward for the plan of salvation, surrenders and humbles himself. Recognize that this is the Lord moving heaven and earth in a sovereign way to do the most surprising things to achieve for us salvation from our sins. We see gospel fulfillment in real time events in our text today. We see it in the legal proceedings. We see gospel fulfillment in the pardon negotiations, if you will. Number three, we see gospel fulfillment in the verdict that is issued by the people. The verdict ad populum, you could call it. And finally, I'd like to close this morning with textual applications. How does this account of the gospel, Jesus in the court of Pilate, serve us as we proclaim the good news beyond this place? First of all, let's consider the legal proceedings that are taking place here. Verse 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor. Let us pause right there. Who is seated and who is standing? Pilate is seated, so to speak. 
verse 19, beside while, besides, while he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. Notice that positional language in the text. The context illustrate who is in charge and who is under the submission of the authority, at least uh, apparently so. Pilate is in the seat of judgment. Jesus is standing before him. Now this is on the heels of a different situation uh, that is prophetically illustrated in, in Matthew 24. Jesus, in Matthew 24, 3, it says, He sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to Him privately and said, When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? What does Jesus proceed to do? Jesus, seated on the Mount of Olives in the place of judgment, as it were, proceeds to declare judgment over the nation of Israel that will come swiftly and decisively, and he decrees not only will the city be destroyed, but the temple will be also be disassembled. And so here we see something of a reversal. All of a sudden, Jesus is not seated in his place of authority as we see him on the Mount of Olives, but he is instead standing um, in kind of a reverse of the situation before the seated earthly ruler, Pilate. Why is this the case? This is the case because Jesus has taken on the burden of suffering for us what we would otherwise suffer as the substitute for, uh, for the judgment that our sin deserved. We deserve to stand in judgment before an authority and be condemned for our sin. We would all, if it wasn't for Christ, power to save us, stand before Him as Matthew 25 declares in judgment before His throne. Remember what he had already proclaimed, verse 31 of Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, when he, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So in the context of the gospel, this situation is a stunning contrast this picture of subjugation of Jesus in this criminal trial is striking indeed. Especially as we recall these prophetic realities of history future in Matthew 25, as we just touched upon, verses 31 all the way through 46, which will declare that one day He will sit on that ultimate seat of judgment, judging all who have ever lived. But in this case... It strikes us, does it not, to see him standing here before Pilate. Bishop Porteus, another author, exclaims of this text, Little did the governor, that is Pilate, little did the governor imagine who it was that then stood before him. Little did he suspect that he himself must one day stand before the tribunal of that very person whom he was then about to judge as a criminal. We ought to read this passage with something of a gasp of the amazing circumstances that are taking place here. One day, Pilate, along with everyone who has ever lived, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if he did not repent of his sin for falsely condemning Jesus, who he knew full well was innocent, then he will receive the just, doom, the just payment do his sin when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him 
and sits on his glorious throne. But if he, that is Pilate, on the other hand, trusted that Jesus stood, judged on behalf of him, condemned on behalf of him, as a substitute for him, and trusted in Jesus to pay for his sin of falsely condemning the Messiah himself to death, Pilate will stand in another line altogether one day in glory. And if you are in Christ today, he will stand with you and me, trusting that the power of blood that he was responsible for shedding could wash away his sin. Brothers and sisters, every leader, every ruler, every authority who has ever delivered anything from the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, from the office of the executive, from the kings of uh, ancient times to the rulers and prime ministers of parliaments this globe over, every single one will one day stand before the King of Kings and give an account And they will only be saved and we will only be saved if we trust in Christ who stood in our place condemned. This is the message of the legal proceedings that are going on in this this gospel fulfillment in real time events. Christ is standing trial on our behalf. Next, consider the prosecution. What are the charges that are brought against him? They're laid out specifically in Luke and Luke chapter 23, verse 2, they are threefold and they are completely baseless. This is the spin and this is the twisting and the manipulation of the crowds and the leaders trying to condemn Christ and trying to come up with an excuse to oppose Him. It says they began to accuse Him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Misleading the nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, a king. These charges were what was levied by, this, by these, his accusers when he stood before Pilate. It says in verse 12, But when he, Christ, was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. What were they accusing him of? Uh, They were saying, Pilate, oh, governor, sir, this man is misleading our people. And you know what? More than that, he refuses us to pay tribute to Caesar. A blatant and complete bold-faced lie. Bearing false witness, breaking the ninth commandment by priests, elders, and the people. They all knew better. They all knew the law of God. It had been part of their culture. The Ten Commandments would have been ingrained in their psyche, in their memorization, in their consciousness. And here they were before an innocent man, before a pagan authority, accusing him of these things which were twisting, manipulating him and the circumstances and out and out lying, bearing false witness against the Lord of glory. Verse 13, Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? This mob is bringing their prosecution before the court of of Pilate, misleading or claiming that Christ is misleading them, claiming that he is guilty of sedition to Caesar, and saying that he, uh, trying to insinuate that he was interested in overthrowing Pilate's own position. Did Jesus make, or did the Jews, I should say, make a habit 
of pursuing and prosecuting those who were hostile to Rome? When did the Jews ever care about those who were seditious to Rome? The Jews hated the Romans. But you know what they hated more than the Romans? They hated Christ more. The elders and the chief priests were now aligning themselves with the fortunes and the intentions of the authority of Pilate and Rome in order to condemn Christ. And this is true in our day as it was then. We will always find more alliances with the wickedness of this world if it joins us in union and makes uh, against Christ and makes our case rebellion against the Lord stronger until God changes the heart of the rebel, until He draws to our attention our great sin. What would the gospel look like in this situation right here? Very simple. One would stand up, and he would first, a preacher could stand up in this situation and proclaim that you are guilty of breaking the ninth commandment. You are bearing false witness against your Messiah. Repent and trust in Him for salvation. That's what the gospel looks like. Calling out our sin according to the standard of righteousness and begging us, pleading with us to repent and place our faith in our Messiah. Thirdly, defense. We have the stand, Jesus standing trial. We have the prosecution that has brought these three spurious charges. And thirdly, we have Christ's defense. Christ answers Pilate in the affirmative by saying, You have said so. Not defending himself so much as proclaiming the truth that he was king of the Jews. In fact, this admission could only be expected to get him into more trouble, not less. But when it came to, to defending himself against the charges that were brought against him, he is strangely silent. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus answers Pilate, but he does not answer his accusers. He is quiet. He is silent. What is he doing in this case or in this situation? He, in his silence, is submitting as a lamb led to the slaughter, to the unjust condemnation that will soon befall him. Pilate knows he is innocent. We find that. Pilate is, is not a dumb ruler. Pilate is insightful. Uh, he has a keen sense of judgment. He understands that something is fishy here. Pilate doesn't know all the ins and outs of Hebrew culture as much as we could expect the chief priest to know so, but he wasn't born yesterday. He knows that the circumstances don't really pass the smell test, and he senses that this man is being falsely accused. He is looking for an excuse, in fact, to let him go free. He fails to find it, and Jesus himself gives him nothing in his own confession to lean on to judge that he is innocent. Why is this the case? Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8 tell us that he was led silently as a lamb to the slaughter. He laid his life down without protest to make payment, atonement for our sins. In the very moment of Christ's willful submission to the unjust charges against him, going willingly to the slaughter for the sake of the atonement of the elect, 
Pilate, this pagan ruler, recognizes that something amazing is going on. He has never seen such a thing before. A man so innocent, not so much as a peep, before his accusers that have ridiculous case to bring against him. You want to tell me that all of a sudden these Jews are interested in the plight of Rome and suddenly they want to bring someone up on charges of sedition against this occupying force? Yeah, right. Earlier we find in the text, verse 26, that they're seeking false testimony, but they couldn't even find so much as two that would agree until finally they were able to piece together something of a cogent testimony against them, but even that was completely and utterly false. In Psalm 50, verse 3, we find that this circumstance would not forever be the case. Though Christ submitted to these circumstances because He was on mission, there would be a time, there would soon come a time when the tables would turn. We see it prophesied in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. We see it proclaimed in the Psalms prophetically even. We reach back to Psalm 50, verse 3. Verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Psalm 50, verse 3 says, Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now Psalm 50 gives us covenantal language. A God who is so concerned with justice that He will summon the heavens above and the earth below as His witnesses to testify to righteousness. So in this moment, it is therefore all the more striking to see the silence of Jesus Christ, who again, like a lamb, is led to the slaughter in these legal proceedings. This is an extraordinary moment. This is the moment that is prepared for our salvation, where Christ is being prepared as a sacrifice for our salvation. Gospel fulfillment in real-time events. So we've talked about legal proceedings. Let's move on to the pardon negotiations. Pilate is seeking for a way to exonerate Christ and to judge Him innocent, and so he gets creative. Verse 15, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So Barabbas is described in Matthew 27 as notorious. A, a prisoner, therefore, who was well known both by the horrific nature of his crimes and was well attested to. He was popularly known among the people. His record was no secret. We find his record further expounded in later Gospels, Luke 23, 19, John 18, verse 40. And these passages, we find that this notorious Barabbas was guilty of sedition and treason, murder, and theft. Three of the most uh, obviously apparent and objective crimes that would render him dangerous and a scourge to any society. Treasonous, murderous thief. This was Barabbas. Note, first of all, the perversion of letting someone like this go. It is the duty, after all of the magistrate to do justly and to act in accordance with God's law and to not let the uh, unrepentant murderer go free, but in fact to levy the judgment that his sin deserved for the sake of the rest of society. 
But the justice of God was perverted in this case on a number of fronts. And the fact that there was a notorious prisoner who was even considered for release as a result of this strange tradition connected with the feast. Also, justice was perverted in the fact that the people cried out that Barabbas would be released unto them. Meanwhile, Jesus would be sent to his death. This record is striking. It is powerful. It illustrates the depth and depravity of our sin. We would sooner have fellowship with Barabbas and even our own sin, seditious, murderous, thieving, than we would with Christ. Because in the presence of Christ, the unrepentant rebel feels uncomfortable. He is threatened by the very existence of the one who holds the standard of righteousness in his right hand and has the power to levy judgments accordingly. We would sooner redefine all of the conventions of justice and righteousness in our laws and in our courts than to submit and surrender to Christ. We see this today, do we not? Has justice fallen in the street? Has righteousness stumbled in the public square in our nation because the claims of Christ come in conflict with the claims of the, uh, of the religious leaders or the civil leaders of our day? Or they come into conflict with the changing whims of culture and the unchecked passions and pleasures of man? It happens at every turn. We would sooner release Barabbas than have Christ. But in this case, as it is today, we see the horrific consequences of such a thing. That Barabbas, in fact, is a danger to society, whereas salvation is found only in Christ alone. And he was accomplishing salvation in these very events. So the pardon negotiations continue. First of all, we see, or secondly, we see that Pilate discerns their motives. He says, whom do you want me to release to you in verse 17? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And notice verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. You see, Pilate understood what was going on here. Pilate knew that these individuals, the chief priests, the elders, were envious of Christ and that this was an illegitimate charge. He recognized this and tried to, therefore, present a circumstance where he could exonerate Christ and let him free. And so we see the motives both of Pilate in setting up this scenario and in the people in bringing Christ to the court in the first place. Pilate recognized that their motives in doing so was out of envy. It was not Christ's guilt, but in fact his goodness that provoked them, and Pilate knew this. These people were offended not at Christ's guilt. They were offended at his goodness. They were not upset because he was a sinner and he was a criminal, but instead they were upset because in his presence they knew that they were criminals and they understood their own sinfulness and so they must have him out of their sight lest they are unable to live with themselves and so out of envy they condemn him to his death Pilate, in fact seems to demonstrate a rather keen sense of judgment in this matter and this uh, serves to show the innocency of christ christ was obviously innocent the wool could not even be pulled over the eyes of this pagan judge who had probably little information to go on about Christ himself and even less knowledge of the background 
of the religious uh, uh, situ- situation and circumstance that was used as a cloak and a device to justify these events. The innocency of Christ was evident through these proceedings. And this trial serves to demonstrate the necessary aspects of atonement. In other words, it was absolutely imperative that Christ, as the Lamb of God, would be without spot and blemish when He was led to the slaughter. And gospel fulfillment is illustrated in these real-time events when we see contrasted against the motives of the people and the mixed motives of Pilate, the pure, unadulterated innocency of Christ. He was the spotless lamb who was slaughtered for our transgressions. He was the one without sin that was led willingly, subjecting himself to these evils on behalf of our salvation for our sake. And as we see these events unfolding, the wickedness of his, uh, of his accusers is only more and more manifest as, this, as the narrative unfolds. And so it is the sinlessness, the virtue, the glories of Christ are even more manifest as these events unfold. Thirdly, under pardon negotiations, we see that Pilate is plagued with misgivings. He does not feel comfortable about how the way things are shaking out. It says in verse 19, Besides, while he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. This is an extremely interesting detail in the text. How many times do you think a wife of a proconsul, a governor, an important leader, interrupts the proceedings in court on account of a dream she had the night before, saying, you better not rule with the people on this one. I know this man is innocent. I have been troubled all night long with thoughts of danger. Beware, husband, don't rule with the crowd in this matter. How many times do you think that happened? I submit to you, probably never. Uh, The Romans had a high view of law, although they were pagans. The proceedings of a court were very, uh, you know, carefully laid out and were treated with some sense of reverence. They cared a lot about law and order, although the basis of their law and order was not founded in the ultimate righteousness of Christ. They took these, nevertheless, they took these proceedings extremely seriously. I submit to you, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary that while Pilate was sitting in the judgment seat, he would be interrupted by a messenger, or perhaps his wife herself, you know, coming to him and saying, oh, wait, 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 I've had a dream, I've had a dream. These events are surprising. There is something going on here. Pilate's misgivings are only compounded by this extraordinary circumstance. What was going on? I submit to you that as has happened throughout the Gospels, Sometimes from an audible voice, by an audible voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God Himself, God the Father Himself, is witnessing to the innocency of His own Son through a dream that was divinely given to the wife of Pilate that is now shared to Him as these events transpire. God the Father is testifying even at this moment 
to the innocency of his son by extraordinarily interrupting the proceedings of the court case by troubling Pilate's wife with dreams. This is powerful indeed. Now Pilate has a dilemma. Given the fact he knows perfectly well and he has a value of law and order that this man who stands before him is innocent, he must weasel his way out of this. He can't in good conscience, even this pagan can't in good conscience just condemn the man man and make the problem go away. So he comes up with an idea. And he places before the people the most notorious uh, criminal he can think of and says, I'll give you one or the other. And of course, the idea is, well, certainly they will choose this man who may have some strange ideas, but obviously is no notorious murderer. To his surprise, to his appalling shock and dismay, the people choose Barabbas. Now what will he do? What should he do? What should a leader do under these circumstances? The magistrate, Pilate, and every other one commissioned that sits in any seat of authority over any government for all of time, is obligated to be bound to the truth and the unchanging law of God. He must rule in accordance with what is right, even if it is unpopular. But you see in Pilate's dilemma that he, as a sinner, under the pressure of the situation, is offering a sly recourse in order to avoid the fallout of public opinion. This happens today, does it not? There are rulers even in our nation today who understand, even by their conscience that plagues them, that the way things shake out in the courts of our day are often unjust and unrighteous. But instead of standing for truth and standing with Christ, oftentimes they will manipulate through sly means in order to skirt by and adjust the situation, to assuage their own conscience, and to avoid the fallout of public opinion at the same time. Listen, this is in sharp contrast to Christ Himself. Christ Himself at this time was willing to bear the mockery, the scourging, the uh, condemnation, the accusation, all of the slights, and the beatings that he would receive of the public, of the populace, of the uh, proconsul, of the governor, the entire world was against him at this time. But he, in deference to the plan of God, endured it all for our sake, and for the sake of his glory manifest in going to the cross for us. Again, we see the gospel fulfilled in real time in these events. We see it even in the part in negotiations, the stark contrast between the sin of man and the righteousness of Christ. Now the verdict is issued. Verses 20 through 23. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? In a last-ditch effort to correct the situation, Pilate appeals to their better judgment. But what do they do? They shout all the more, let him be crucified. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 8 and 9, 
there are directions given for priests, leaders, judges, who are called to serve and influence the people of God in righteousness. Remember, at this very scene, the primary influences in the people are chief priests. And they magnify their own sin when they abuse their position of influence in the people to incite them to call for the crucifixion of the innocent Messiah. What were they supposed to do? Deuteronomy 17, 8. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. You shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office to those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. The priests were supposed to be there to consult in a situation like this. Which man is guilty? Which man is innocent? These men, these people, they didn't even need a priest to determine that. And yet, what did the priests do? They did not correct the sensibilities of the crowd. Instead, they inflamed them. They used the occasion and the position of their office to persuade them, to influence them, to stir up a cultural revolt. These cultural leaders, they prayed and they influenced and they incited the people's opinions, their passions, and their desires. And they did so, inciting within them, appealing to their base nature, a cry, crucify him crucify him. They stirred them up in their sinfulness to cry out in antichrist sentiments, away with the man, the only sinless Messiah. And so they issued their conviction. Like the mob storming Lot's house, you remember, they have that they demanded their way, that they would have their way with the innocent visitors. And in a depraved and blind rage, they banged upon the residents of Lot all night long. This is a picture of the sinfulness of man, stirred to a fevered pitch and frenzy, even at the point of Christ's most vulnerable moments, at the point where Christ was demonstrated to be innocent in sharp contrast with the people and even recognized as such by the pagan governor. Nevertheless, the crowd cried out for his conviction. And what did they cry? Crucify him. Crucify him. The most horrifically shaming death imaginable. And why did they cry out for this? Well, they did so influenced by the chief priests and the elders. Why were the chief priests in, uh, in, why were they influencing the crowd this way? Why were they interested in sending Christ to this worst execution imaginable in their day? Because they knew this horrific shaming event would do a lot, they thought, to uh, put down and to ruin his following and his disciples. This is the irony of the situation. If the leader was crucified, if he was unjustly condemned, if he endured this shameful death, they hoped that that would throw a wet blanket on his followers. Hoping against hope that those who had been influenced by Jesus would now ashamedly disavow their associations with their teacher. Wow, I guess we missed it on that one. I guess we were wrong there. No real Messiah would be overcome by Rome and set, sent to such a shameful demise. What happened instead? It wasn't but three days 
and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, demonstrated the superior power and authority of His kingship even over death itself. And in spite of the enemy's plans, the chief uh, leaders, the chief priests and the elders and the people at this time, their condemnation of Christ, their conviction, the sentence of crucifixion only served to magnify the power and glory of Christ when he would demonstrate his authority over the grave, when in three short days he would rise from the dead. They instead ironically proved him a prophet as he prophesied what death he would die. They afflicted him, that is, these crowds in Rome and the leaders of the day, they afflicted him with the instruments of our atonement. By his stripes, through those whips, we were healed. By his broken body and shed blood, our sin was atoned. And so, brothers and sisters, by this very act, here we are today. Has the death of Jesus ashamedly caused his followers to drift into obscurity, never to be heard of in history again? No. By this very act, Christ atoned for himself a people that now shout his praises some 2,000 years later and will continue to give glory to his holy name, coming into his sheepfold, confessing that this very death was the basis for their salvation for time immemorial until such time as he demonstrates his authority and power over sin and death and the grave once and for all at that great judgment we read of in Matthew 25 where all his enemies are subdued under his feet and the palingenesia, the regenerated earth, is all that remains here to give him glory forever and ever. How are we to apply these difficult and heavy truths that we read of today? Well, I just mentioned one way. Think forward to the mighty deeds that God is in Christ is accomplishing at this time. But we won't touch on all of these this morning, but there are three additional textual applications. How in preaching and exhortation does the Bible itself appeal to these very events? What useful purpose do they serve when we see the confession of Christ before Pilate? Well, consider one example in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, the disciples imbued by the Holy Spirit are preaching the gospel of Christ unashamedly. In verse 14 they say, But you, speaking to the crowds, denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So what are they doing? They're calling out the sin of, uh, for the release of Barabbas and the condemnation of Christ. They're speaking to the crowd that they are worthy of judgment because of these things. It says, verse 15, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So an appeal to this very moment in the gospel to demonstrate the sin of man is used in this great sermon where Peter speaks in Solomon's portico and brings the message of salvation to sinners who were at enmity with Christ and responsible for his death. In 1 Peter 2, we see again how an appeal to these moments in the gospel is used to encourage the church. And in this case, it's a call to suffering, to embrace God's purposes in trial. In 1 Peter 2, 23, for instance, he says, To the church 
who has been plagued by all these difficulties. He says to them to faint not. He, he says, uh, recalling Christ, back to verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Peter is appealing to the moments we read in the gospel today. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Remember, Pilate was amazed because Christ did not defend himself when he was suffering and reviled, but continued, it says, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There is an encouragement to rely, to lean on Christ that we might suffer because, or that we might have grace and strength to suffer because Christ has suffered for us. There is an encouragement to look to Christ who laid himself bare, who laid himself down and bore our sins in his body on the tree that we ourselves might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's also a call to resolve in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 13. And we are called in this instance to maintain an eternal frame of mind, motivating us to persevere under all conditions. And so today, what can we learn by looking to the testimony of Christ? We can learn that our sin was wicked and gross, and it condemned Christ even to the death. But in His suffering, on, in these very moments, on Calvary and on the way to Calvary, we have been released from the judgment of our sin. And we can be resolved to look to Christ, as Hebrews 12 also says, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross as we seek to follow Him, taking up our cross and laying down our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer that we would apply this word today. Oh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look deeply into your scriptures. And I pray that just the surface we scratched today would inspire us to look deeper still. I pray, Lord, that as you awaken our souls to appreciate what you have done on Calvary, Lord Jesus, that it would inspire us to see clearly the reality of our situation and the situation of the world, to call out as the apostles did, for repentance and faith among those who are responsible in their enmity against Christ for the most horrific of actions. And may we be resolved to suffer for your name's sake in all of this that you may be glorified and the mighty work that was, that was accomplished on Calvary, Lord, would be proclaimed and heralded through your people even today, thousands of years removed from the event, recognizing it is timeless in its power to save. It has saved us, and it will save more by your grace as we proclaim the knowledge of the glory of God in the great work of our redemption. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.